welcome back. I am Isabel Gonzalez and sitting here with me is Hannah Fowler. We have a very exciting episode today and in preparation I made sure to have a good night's sleep so that I'm recharged and ready to go. <laughs> today we are going to be discussing how computational methods are used in the field of electrochemistry and especially towards effective battery design. And we have chosen this particular topic as it is a great example of how the work that scientists do in a lab or in our case on computers can be transferred into tangible improvements in our day-to-day -day lives. When we consider batteries, I think a lot of us turn to the electronic devices that we carry around with us and use daily, like our phones and laptops. It's easy to see how small improvements to these batteries could affect us very positively. For example, researchers are working towards improving the energy density of batteries, or in other words, how much energy you can get out of the battery with regards to its weight and size. This would make our devices even lighter and their battery life longer lasting. Phones lasting your full day or nights out, what a dream! <laughs> But there have also been some serious improvements towards other aspects, such as their safety and even their prices, so it's obvious that we have a lot to gain from the achievements in this field. Not only that, but batteries are also a very important topic from an environmental point of view. To this end, the effects of batteries in our surroundings can be summarised in three main points. The issue of battery disposal and recycling, in order to avoid the pollution of our soil and water, or even the excess of space occupied with our landfill. Secondly, the environmental impact of mining in order to obtain the materials that batteries are composed of. And I am sure this doesn't look like a big scale process when you look at your tiny iPhone battery which fits in your hand. But what about when we consider the number of devices that use them? Suddenly this seems like a much bigger problem. Or how about even bigger batteries, like those in electric cars, which albeit a fantastic development to avoid the use of fossil fuels and their consequent environmental contamination, could easily be the size of a small table. And finally, an increased need for efficient, widespread and stable systems for energy storage. This is due to the fast development of new forms of energy production from renewable sources, which are different to how we previously generated energy. Exactly so. And indeed in chemistry there is a very widespread sense of responsibility on how we can obtain the same benefits from batteries whilst reducing our impact on the environment. Green chemistry can be used to design sustainable processes and resultant products which try to avoid the production of toxic substances as well as trying not to use them in the first place. As such, battery design will actively implement a set of green chemistry principles to achieve this aim. And for interested listeners, you can find out more about this kind of research and other green developments in the Green Chemistry Journal from the Royal Society of Chemistry. Absolutely! So let's take a step back and think about how a battery works. In a very simple manner, a battery is a form of converting chemical energy into electrical energy. In order to do this, we need to bring back some concepts and understanding of redox reactions, which occur due to a transfer of electrons between different chemical species in the reaction. The simplest battery would consist of three components. The anode, where the oxidation reaction takes place. This means a loss of electrons from a chemical species. The cathode, where the reduction reaction takes place, which is the opposite of oxidation and electrons are gained. And the electrolyte, which serves as a chemical contact between the two ends. During a discharge, or this transfer of chemical energy into electrical energy, electrons are released from the chemical constituent of the anode and cathode accepts them. This creates a net flow of electrons and this is what causes the desired electrical current. However, for the electrons to be exchanged, there also needs to be an exchange of ions, and this is made possible through the electrolyte. That's right, and for disposable batteries this can only happen in one direction. That is, we start with a set amount of chemical energy and a potential difference between the anode and the cathode. 
These batteries produce electricity when they are placed in a closed circuit until it runs out of reactants and the chemical potential at both ends is equal. But in the case of rechargeable batteries, the opposite reaction can be triggered and so the initial conditions are restored. But as our listeners may have noticed, the processes for energy conversion are well established and have been for a very long time, so we already know how all of this happens. Furthermore, we learned how to utilise this process a while ago, as we already have many forms of energy storage and different kinds of batteries available. So what else are we working towards? Well, Hannah, of course we have researched this topic for a considerable amount of time, but there is always room for improvement. A very clear example is that in all of the internal processes I have described, there are often other non-reversible reactions that end up reducing the efficiency of our batteries. And so research into these processes and the design of alternative batteries could instead focus on the concerns from the scientific community as to their environmental impact and efficiency? Yes, and to this end there are some fascinating pieces of research that could help us reach this goal. For example, at the moment graphite materials are the most widely spread components for the anode in lithium batteries, and there has been some research into substituting these with other materials like silicon, which could increase battery efficiency. Over something even more ambitious, the lithium in rechargeable batteries could be replaced entirely for some other elements such as sodium or magnesium. And finally, the usual liquid electrolyte could be also replaced by a solid material. To help us answer some of these questions and to discuss further what Izzy just mentioned, we spoke with Professor Tom Miller from the California Institute for Technology, or Caltech, who amongst many other areas has a research focus towards the design of new batteries. Hi Tom, welcome to the podcast. We're excited to speak with you today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your research interests? Sure. Thanks very much for having me on. I'm a theoretical chemist that works at Caltech, although my graduate work was done in the UK at University College London and at Oxford. I'm broadly interested in the dynamics of chemical systems and in developing theoretical methods that address the challenges that arise while while studying the dynamics of these systems. We work in areas that include inorganic catalysis, enzyme reactivity, the way proteins get targeted and folded to cell membranes within cells, and uh, additionally battery chemistry, which is what I guess we'll be talking about today. Yes, so we have discussed a little bit earlier a bit on green chemistry, and to this end batteries are a big topic at the moment, which is being researched by a lot of groups around the world. As we haven't discussed this topic on the podcast before, could you explain generally how do we store energy, or in a simple manner, how does a battery work? Batteries store electrical energy in the form of chemical energy, which can then be converted back into electricity. So the basic components of a battery are pretty simple. In addition to the two electrodes at the end of a battery, you have the electrolyte solution that is sandwiched in between. The positive electrode is called the cathode, the negative electrode is called the anode, and when a battery discharges, the electrons flow from the anode to the cathode, like a ball rolling downhill, which creates the ability to do work, like turning on or lighting a light bulb or driving a car or anything else. When a battery is recharged, you drive the electrons back in the other direction so that they're poised again back uphill to do more work. And as the electrons are driven backwards and forwards during charging and discharging, within the battery interior in the electrolyte, there are ions that counterbalance that movement of the electrons to create overall charge balance. Great. So how do the battery in the laptop differ to a small AA one we find in our recorder? 
Sure. Beyond their size, laptop batteries, uh, like a, a typical laptop battery versus uh, something like a, a AA Energizer or Duracell battery, will substantially differ in terms of the underlying chemistry. So Duracell batteries um, are, are called alkaline batteries, and they are driven by two different chemical reactions. On the cathode, there's a manganese oxide reaction that's occurring, and on the anode, there's a zinc reaction that's basically occurring. Uh, both of those involve reactions that include hydroxide ions, which give them their alkaline battery name. Now, these are popular batteries because they store a lot of energy in a small package and because they can remain charged for a very long time. However, these batteries are typically not rechargeable, which means that once you discharge them, you have to throw them away, which, of course, isn't very green. On the flip side, with a laptop battery, we typically use lithium-ion batteries. These operate much more simply in terms of just shuttling lithium ions from the cathode, which is typically a metal oxide, to the anode, which is typically a carbon graphite material, as the battery discharges. And then we shuttle them back as the battery is recharged. Again, pushing a ball downhill and back uphill. Because the lithium is lightweight, and electropositive, these batteries store a lot of energy, but they can also be recharged hundreds or thousands of times, so they're much more environmentally sound than an alkaline battery, and they're also useful for applications where you need that rechargeability, like a laptop or a cell phone or an electric car. Cool. So these types of batteries are commonly found in devices we own, like I think you mentioned a second ago. But how do we store energy on a much larger scale? Yeah, this gets into the domain of grid energy storage, wherein energy, for example, from intermittent, source, intermittent sources like renewable solar or renewable wind um, exceeds consumption and then would like to be stored on a large scale. Batteries for grid applications can be used in uh, some of the chemistries that I've previously mentioned, like, like lithium-ion, but they can also use different technologies like older lead-acid batteries or even newer technologies like sodium or flow. I think one thing that's interesting to point out about grid storage is that it illustrates that these batteries are subject to very different demands than the demands that one would expect from a laptop or an iPhone battery. For example, a grid battery can be a whole lot heavier than an iPhone battery because you don't have to remove it around much. You won't be transporting it. But on the other hand, you might expect that it uh, demand that it lasts a lot longer than your iPhone battery, lasting for more than the year or two that you would expect from your iPhone battery. Okay, so in your opinion, what challenges are we facing in the development of these big energy storages and also considering what we actually need from these batteries? Yeah, I think as with any technology, we are very greedy when it, when it comes to batteries, right? We want it all. We want it to be safer. We want it to be lighter. We want it to be more powerful, longer lasting. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> we want it, you know, the list goes on and on. It has to be environmentally friendly and earth abundant. I mean, there are many different demands that we, we hope from a battery. And this kind of creates a lot of different opportunities for uh, making improvements in any of these different directions or dimensions of the battery performance. I think one of the things that's interesting about batteries is that, you know, the different scenarios in which you will use the battery create different things that you want the battery to be really good at. For example, if you're going to use a battery in, in a drone that, that will fly around, it has to be extraordinarily lightweight, extraordinarily energy dense. On the other hand, if you're going to take a battery and you're going to put it on a mission where it goes off on JPL and explores the outer solar system, you know, you also want to require that it will operate over an extraordinarily wide range of temperatures on top of these other constraints. So I think the diversity of applications in which batteries are used create a lot of different opportunities for, for innovation. And as a theorist, this is really 
interesting and, and rich environment. Um, understanding all of the different underlying processes that are leading to the, the performance in these different dimensions is something that you know brings in elements of electronic structure theory, materials properties, chemical reactivity, electrode interface properties, uh, as well as the statistical mechanics of the underlying electrode. And this is what this kind of richness in and diversity of problem that, that, that come to bear is what really draws me into the field. Wow, fascinating. Thank you. We read a couple of your papers, and the first one we wanted to talk about was entitled Designing Polymer Electrolytes, Safe and High-Capacity Rechargeable Lithium Batteries. So the battery focused on this paper comprised of polyethylene oxide, or PEO. How is this different to the types of batteries we've already discussed? The main thrust of this work is to design improved battery electrolytes that are based on polymers rather than on liquids to solve the ions as they drift from one electrode to the other. So in a typical lithium ion battery, you would have organic liquids that solvate the ions and allow for the shuttling of that uh, those ions to achieve the charge balance that's necessary for the battery performance. But these liquid electrolytes tend to be flammable and therefore they can be less safe if the battery is ruptured for some reason. Polymers, on the other hand, um, are, are of course less flammable because of the fact that they're so much heavier, big molecules. The downside of polymers is of course the fact that they are goopy materials, which lead to very slow ion diffusion, much more intrinsically slow ion diffusion than you would expect from a liquid, which corresponds to worse battery performance. So the real challenge is to get new polymers that can act as the electrolytes while rapidly shuttling the ions to achieve that high ion co ionic conductance that's needed for good battery performance. Okay, so also what I think I have liked the most about this paper is that it constitutes a great example of a collaboration that actually works with various experimental groups. Since this is a theoretical chemistry podcast and you've mentioned all your interests, we wanted to ask you how do you use computational chemistry to approach the problems that you've just mentioned now? Certainly. It was indeed a, a really fun collaboration. I mean, we got to work with synthetic chemists who would make materials. We got to work with chemical engineers who would characterize those materials. And, and our job as theorists was basically to understand the mechanism by which the ions were moving in the polymers and then to propose new mechanisms or new materials that would lead to faster, more efficient ion diffusion um, in, these, in these polymer electrolytes. So the theory side initially was built upon really simple classical molecular dynamics. We would just take the all-atom simulations of these ions, we would propose different polymers that were synthetically accessible, and, and we would run long molecular dynamic simulations to characterize what was, what was going on. The neat thing is we began to identify mechanisms for ion diffusion in these polymer electrolytes, which then suggested more efficient and more creative ways of then doing that theoretical modeling. So what I also thought was really cool in that paper was that it's reported that discoveries in the area led to the production of a new coarse-grained model, which I believe you're helping to model new batteries. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mentioned that we sort of achieved some new insights in the way in which the ions were moving within the polymers. The, the essential thing that we recognized is that a polymer creates all of these different regions of space, these local areas of space, in which an ion could live happily. We call these nascent solvation sites. There isn't an ion there, but it's locally configured so that the ion could happily live there. 
And once you recognize that there are these networks or highways of pathways by which ions can move from one nascent solvation site to another nascent solvation site throughout the polymer, then you can create much more simple coarse-grained models whereby you map out this network of sites that the ions can live on, and then you simply model the coarse-grained hopping of the ions among these different sites. So this is the essence of, of the coarse-grained model that emerged from this work, and it led to, I think, very nice opportunity in terms of screening new polymers in a much more efficient way than, than running these all-atom, long-timescale molecular dynamic simulations. Have you used this model further since the paper was published? Yeah, we have actually. So, oh, good. <laughs> so it's led to uh, a number of new collaborations that we're really having fun. So we indeed uh, used it to screen a number of different polymers. It led us to kind of recognize that there are ways to improve the solvation of salt in polymers by driving that in through the anion interactions more than the lithium cation interactions, and that leads to much faster, more facile lithium ion diffusion. So one of the things that has emerged from this work is what we call these Lewis acid polymers, these polymers that are driven by their affinity for the anion, not the lithium that is driving the important diffusion behavior of the chemistry. And we are working with synthetic chemists at Caltech and, and elsewhere to realize and to uh, test out some of these ideas that emerged from that work. Great. So the second paper we wanted to talk about was called Room Temperature Cycling of Metal Fluoride Electrodes, Liquid Electrolytes for High Energy Fluoride Ion Cells. So how does the new type of battery reported, called a fluoride ion battery, or FIB, represent an improvement on lithium-based ones that we're more used to? You know, I think the first point to make is that fluoride ion batteries are a much less mature technology. So it's an early stage, still highly experimental type of battery chemistry. Nonetheless, it's, it's a very promising one. Fluoride ion batteries basically flip the script on lithium ion batteries, whereas a lithium ion battery operates by the drift or shuttling of lithiums from the cathode to the anode and back during recharging. The fluoride ion batteries have the negative ions, the fluorides, as the carrier of that charge through the, uh, through the process of, of charging and discharging. The benefit of fluoride ion batteries is that because of the fact that they have such high valency in terms of the way the fluorides bind at the, at the two cathodes, they lead to very high theoretical energy densities. They're potentially eight times greater energy dense than current lithium ion batteries. So this had drawn a lot of interest for a long time in fluoride ion batteries, but the previous problem with fluoride ion batteries is that they had typically only been made to work in a rechargeable context when you used what's called a solid electrolyte, something that isn't liquid, something that basically was even stiffer than a polymer electrolyte, like we were just mentioning. And the problem with these solid electrolytes is that the only way that you could get the ions moving was to operate them at extremely high temperatures, over 300 degrees Fahrenheit. So this work that, that you mentioned, this new paper, which was a wonderful collaboration with uh, scientists at JPL, including Simon Jones, and scientists at Caltech, including Bob Grubbs and scientists at Honda, we worked together to figure out how to stably solvate fluoride ions in organic liquids and thereby creating the first rechargeable room temperature fluoride ion battery. 
Something both of us noticed after reading these papers was that there were a lot of mentions to the cycle life of these respective design batteries. So in a simple way, we understand that the cycle life is the number of charge and discharge cycles a battery can undergo before it loses its efficiency. But why is it so important to extend this feature as much as possible, and how do researchers such as yourself approach this problem? There's no doubt that cycle life, which indeed, as you say, is just basically the number of times that you can fully charge and discharge a battery, is absolutely central to a rechargeable battery's usefulness. I mean, anybody that's taken their cell phone and noticed that as a function of it getting months and months and months older, every time that you, you know, take it out, it lasts for a little bit less time before you have to recharge it. This is because of the fact that the battery inside is in some sense deteriorating. It's undergoing unwanted and from a chemical sense, irreversible side reactions that are not productive to the, the recharging and charging process, but which basically lead to lower and lower energy density as a function of time. So yeah, basically other reactions that you don't want happening are occurring a little bit with each cycle that occurs. And as a result, the battery just gets less and less efficient. So obviously battery makers want to forestall deterioration as long as possible. And the way in which people might strive to do that is to create chemistries that have fewer and fewer off-pathway chemical reactions that are that are available. So that's intrinsically a chemistry challenge, understanding the mechanisms, both the wanted mechanisms and the unwanted mechanisms that lead to this deterioration. And, you know, maybe at a very practical level, operating at lower temperatures, like we were just mentioning with the fluoridine battery, is a good way to mitigate off-pathway chemical reactions because as you're you know, increasing at higher and higher temperatures, simply more stuff can go on. So going to lower temperatures and having the same um, battery performance available at lower temperatures is a good way to um, try to increase cycle life. That's good. I'm glad to hear that my battery life might last longer in the future. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's all going to be made better. <laughs> in your opinion, what is the most difficult aspect of designing new batteries? Yeah, you know, I just think it's the the complexity. I mean, it's kind of an amazing thing if you think about a battery that it's really three parts, right? You have an anode, you have a cathode, and you got the electrolyte in the middle. So, so how hard can it really be? But the bottom line is that it brings together extraordinary array of fundamental issues, including surface reactivity, ion solvation, you know, the challenges of chemical synthesis and material science, and as well as fundamental engineering challenges. And, and it brings all of these together in a way that has to lead to, you know, one working functioning battery. And I, I just think it's the interplay between all of these different aspects of chemistry, ranging from, again, the, the, the chemical reactivity to, to the material science, is, is a very interesting array of, of problems and a very interesting uh, challenge to work in. And, and curving out specific questions that you know any given person with any given skill set can address in this complex environment i think requires careful thought and requires you know careful planning and, and is a big part of the challenge of contributing do you think the more collaborations like the ones are involved in between theoreticians and experimentalists are the best way to make progress in the field yeah absolutely you know as i was indicating the problem is just too big and too complex and spans too many types of science for any one group to to fully address so bringing together not just 
theoretical chemists and experimental chemists, but additionally bringing in collaborations with engineers so that you can and material scientists so you can fully span the relevant range of issues that are that are highly coupled to each other is is I think an essential part of making progress on on battery applications. Right, so as this is such a complex issue, how do you expect this field will change in the next 5 to 10 years? Do you think we will have found the perfect battery by then? Will we have a battery revolution? Do you think there will be an increase in theoretical and computational methods being used in this area? I, I think it's undoubtable given, you know, the exciting approaches that people are bringing and the exciting ideas that people are pursuing. Um, I think it's undoubtable that progress will continue to be made. I would point out that there is no one battery chemistry that should be expected to win. Like I was kind of mentioning earlier, because of the different ways in which batteries are used and the different environments in which batteries are used, you really want different things to be optimized in different cases. And that will lead to different chemical solutions to that problem. So I think it's very natural that there will always be kind of an ecosystem of available battery technologies, all of which are improving in different ways. And, and yeah, I really do think that theory will continue to play a big role in that overall process. Um, I think it can be a very useful driver for better theoretical chemistry methods. On the electronic structure side, I think it's a big driver for um, improved you know, quantum embedding methods or improved wave function theory methods that can get you the accuracy that you want, but enable you to get down to costs that allow for computational costs, that allow for on the fly ab initio molecular dynamics. I think in terms of chem chemical reactivity, understanding the non-adiabatic reactions that are happening at these interfaces when electron transfer occurs and when battery charging and discharging occurs, I think is a, a very interesting and, and you know, important challenge for, for chemical dynamics and theorists interested in that. And, and I think, you know, on a broader scale, developing improved machine learning methods to guide materials discovery, as well as to accelerate aspects of these other methods that I've mentioned earlier, are another fruitful direction for, for theorists to be pursuing that'll have, you know, utility and, and help to push forward the, this important area of battery chemistry. So I think the opportunity space is, is frankly wide open and there's a lot of different ways for theorists to get involved and to contribute. Exactly. I was just thinking that, as you were saying, that it sounds like there's a lot of opportunity for theoreticians to explore this area and lots of different ways in which they could do that. And you just mentioned the machine learning, so that's really nice to know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think... Um, yeah, I, I think it's the sort of thing where experimentalists and engineers are also very eager for these theoretical insights and, and eager to collaborate and, and also recognize that it's something where they recognize that one group can't do it alone either. And, and having the, the tools that theorists bring to bear on the, on the situation is, it really adds a lot of value. If we have any listeners that are maybe thinking of going into this area, then I think you've now got a lot to think about and explore, which is really exciting. So I think that's about all we've got time for in this episode. But thank you so much again for joining us, Tom. And we're really looking forward to seeing what you're going to be doing next. Thanks so much, Anna and Izzy. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Professor Tom Miller for speaking with us on this topic. And if any of our listeners are also working in this field, then please comment and let us know. Also, if you have any questions or comments about this episode, then let us know on Twitter or Instagram at TheoryPod or on our Theoretically Speaking Facebook page. 
Finally, we'd like to thank TMCS and the EPSRC for supporting this podcast and all of you for listening. Do join us next time for some more exciting theoretical chemistry discussion. You've been listening to Theoretically Speaking. Theoretically Speaking.